I'm Carly Fiorina, and this is By Example. On this podcast, we sit down with leaders of all types to explore examples of real leadership and the qualities of all great problem solvers. I think we get really confused about what leadership is. On By Example, we lift up the real leaders, people who are focused on changing the order of things for the better and solving real problems that are right in front of them. Leading by example. My conversation with Stephen Harper, a former Prime Minister of Canada, isn't a typical conversation with a politician. It's also a bit different from other podcast conversations we've had. I was drawn to invite Stephen Harper to by example because he is one of the few politicians I'm aware of who voluntarily gave up or stepped down from a position of great power and influence when he didn't need to. He's an example of someone in public service and public life who always talks about the bigger purpose he is trying to serve and rarely talks about himself. Pretty exceptional. And he's a politician who came up in an unusual way, who started at the bottom uh, voluntarily, again, in many ways. And so he has some really interesting theories about the kind of education and experience that helps people learn how to lead with humility and empathy, that helps them collaborate effectively. He has some really interesting perspectives about the difference between serving the larger public interest versus being swayed by popular opinion. And there is a difference. And so we have some really interesting conversations about public policy, hopefully in an interesting, not a boring way, and not in a political way necessarily, but public policy as a way of solving problems and making progress. I think you'll really enjoy the conversation with Stephen Harper. I know I did. And I think you'll find his perspectives about the larger public interest in a time of great change and increasing ambiguity to be thought-provoking. When it comes to any organization, but particularly, let's just talk about the political arena, which I'm most familiar with. Here is the thing that I think leaders have to reconcile. On the one hand, you know, good leaders don't kind of just go with the mob or the polls or the emotions of the minute. On the other hand, um, it is important to understand in large organizations and particularly in uh, public democratic organizations that you're ultimately there to serve the wider public interest, to serve the people that that institution represents. So you can't go all the way to saying, I don't care about public opinion and it's kind of only my best judgment that matters. You absolutely do have to listen to the views of others, understand their interests and understand their opinions and understand that you have to govern in those interests, which doesn't mean, you know, which doesn't mean you're going to agree with the majority all the time, but means you're very often going to have to and or find some way of reconciling that. And but it also means that you're not going to be able to agree with everybody. And, you know, there's a, a big difference between listening to everybody and trying to please everybody. And uh, political leaders are constantly, I think, um, 
misunderstanding that kind of challenge. I, I think you're so right. You know, I'm fond of saying that uh, balance is the art of leadership. And what you're talking about fundamentally is finding the right balance points between, right. for example, as you just mentioned, listening and understanding everyone versus trying to please everyone, important uh, balance point. And the other thing you're talking about is the fundamental purpose of leadership, which is to serve. To serve. It is, it is to serve, and it is also, it is to serve, but it's at the same time as you're serving, it's important to understand that you're accepting responsibility. And, and look, there are times where as a leader in any organization, particularly a, demo, a, a leader in a democratic organization, you'll do things that reflect, uh, you know, elements of public opinion that you may not completely agree with. That's just the reality of the situation. But you always have to remember that when you take a decision, and let's say you take a decision, we often face this. I would often remind my colleagues of this in my cabinet and caucus. If you take a decision that you know to be both to be popular and also to be wrong, be under no illusion that the people will eventually hold you responsible for the fact that that decision was wrong, and they will not remember that they agreed with it at the time. And so, that's you know, all. That's say, wise counsel. I say you're both you're serving, but you are accepting the responsibility. Yes, exactly right. You know, um, one of the things you're talking about in a way here, and you certainly talk about it in your book, is um, empathy. You don't exactly use that word. But what you do say is that it's really important for leaders to understand why people feel the way they do, why people are frustrated by what they're frustrated with. Um, I would call that empathy, and I think it's a very important quality in leadership. Um, I think a lot of so-called leaders have lost their sense of empathy if they ever had it. How did you learn, maybe it was your experience in the mailroom, but how did you learn the importance of empathy in leadership, understanding where people coming are coming from, and why do you think so many leaders lack it? So I, w I was not, uh, for those who know me, uh, I was not the kind of guy to kind of feel your pain in public. I just, I'm, I'm not kind of emotionally expressive that way, and I'm also a bit to be frank, distrustful of leaders who flaunt emotionalism in public because I often think, not always, but I often think it's, it's, it's manipulative and false. Mm -hmm. But you're absolutely right. You, whether you're demonstrating emotion in public or not, you have to have empathy with people. You have to respect the legitimacy of their point of view. And I, I think I came across that in large part through experience. You know, I grew up in a middle class household. My on my my father's side, the family were middle class professionals. On my mother's side, they were rural people. Um, I worked uh, in you know labor jobs, low end uh, clerical work in the early part of my career. Lived in low income neighborhoods. Um, also, obviously, as prime minister, had the opportunity to, to meet you know much more powerful and affluent uh, people. So I, I had a range of exposure to different kinds of people, and and you know they all have their pluses and they all have their minuses. But the one thing you you know in in all but rare rare cases you have to accept is the legitimacy of people's own perspectives. They may, from your point of view, be wrong, uh, but you know. 
people are who they are and their experiences are different than yours and just because they're different than yours does not mean you can just denigrate them or dismiss them or wish them out of existence. And why do you think that fundamental point that you just made is so hard for a lot of people in positions of leadership? I think there's no doubt it's hard for a lot of people. Why do you think that is? So, Carly, let me give you a, a kind of a, a kind of a personal explanation, not one I've talked a lot about before. Uh, but I think some of this stems from the nature of our education system. Um, our education system in the modern Western world has gone down, you know, a very different route than traditional education systems in not just you know, more, uh, less advanced societies, but even in kind of earlier stages of Western society. We think about education now as strictly kind of about knowledge and academic learning. Whereas, you know, in many other parts of the world, many other times of history, people understood education to not be just about that, but also about practical experience in what you are doing, and also about the development of character. And I just think that our modern education systems often develop people who are very wise, or wise is not the word, very smart in a theoretical academic book sense, but frankly lack, they simply lack the real world experience that often far less educated people have and have absorbed. And in many cases, um, the nature of the emphasis on this academic and theoretical book, book learning generates an intellectual arrogance that just is not consistent with the development of character that experience and other things in life do for you. And so I think you often do get, and I think some of these leaders are very dangerous. You do get in business and politics and uh, obviously academia you often get leaders who are very, very one-dimensional with very low regard, frankly, for people who have much more well-developed personalities and well-developed senses of experience and shrewdness. I, I can tell you I have met in my life, whether it's business, politics, um, other walks of life, I have met people with very little education who are very shrewd, very smart, very wise, and I have met experts who are some of the foolish, most foolish people you could come across. And so I, I think part of this is we, we've developed a very, a very narrow notion of personal development and often think that this very narrow notion of personal development will suit people to positions of leadership, and often it does not. I think that is so true. <laughs> I think you said that so well. It's one of the things that I think is fundamental to real leadership as opposed to people with the title that allows others to assume they're leaders is this notion of character that you're talking about. And one of the things that I find uh, in talking to young people or in advising and consulting uh, with businesses uh, or nonprofits, and I know you do consulting as well, is people are... Yep. They don't really know what character means anymore. It sounds like such an old-fashioned term. And so I find myself talking with people about character. What is it? Why is it important? One of the things that I think happens with the kind of um, educational system you're describing and the resulting 
uh, point of view that says it's all about book learning, it's all about IQ, uh, it's all about academic achievement, is uh, sometimes these are also people who not only lack wisdom and empathy and common sense and uh, all the things that other experiences give us, but they also sometimes lack the ability to absorb uh, failures, setbacks, criticism. Someone of character knows how to handle those things, and so they're fragile in a way. Uh, they're, they're impacted by criticism and setbacks in a way that isn't consistent with a leader's ability to keep going when the going gets tough. And as we know, the going always gets tough. I, I agree with you. Um, you know, leading as opposed to Let's just put it in context. I was a very high-performing academic student, so I'm talking a bit about my own evolution here. But, you know, when you actually kind of, for lack of a better term, get out there in the real world, you learn those kind of things. And and we all know, those of us who have run real organizations in the real world as opposed to just theoretical exercises understand that often our best learning moments, in retrospect, were our failures— they were not our successes. You actually tend to learn very little from success, and success often can breed a false confidence. But if you're a really good leader who does, as you say, develop character and develop resilience and develop experience over time, your failures are the most instructive thing you will have as you go forward. Well, it's so interesting you say that. Uh, you know, I, like you, I mean, I'm a Stanford and an MIT grad and straight A's and all that as you are. And yet, when I look at my own life, and I tell people this, some of the most formative experiences I've had were when I was a secretary. I started mm-hmm. my business career as a secretary. When I battled cancer, because I learned so much from others who, in some cases, were battling cancers far more devastating than mine. And honestly, when we lost our daughter, who was the victim of addiction, and the people that I met through that journey um, made me so much wiser, stronger, more empathetic. And so... um, not to say academic learning isn't important, it is, but it's uh, only one facet of the development of someone's character. And when people rely overly on one facet as opposed to a multifaceted set of experiences, uh, they end up with flat spots. Yeah, and, and, I, and I obviously agree with that. And I, as I say, I've known, I've known not just the kind of person I talked about earlier, the you know, for lack of a better term, the shrewd operator without a lot of education, but with a lot of practical experience. I've also met people who display, you know, extraordinary degrees of resilience and wisdom and calmness under pressure. And often those things aren't even taught by job experience. They're taught by the kind of difficult life experiences that you've, you've mentioned. What makes you, Prime Minister, what makes you optimistic about the state of the world today? And what makes you concerned about the state of the world? Um, So on the optimistic side, and I think we should be fundamentally optimistic, at no point in human history have more people been better off with more opportunities than we have today. And I know some of the 
you know, many enormous challenges we face. But when I look at my children and I think of the occupational opportunities that are in front of them, the lifestyle opportunities that are in front of them, I think of the fact that technology in terms of what it's going to do for health, um, for mobility, I, literally things that were science fiction a few years ago are becoming possibilities for people. So I think fundamentally we should be highly uh, optimistic. Um, what concerns me most about people, I say, first of all, what we've been talking about. And as you know, my book talks a lot about this, um, that we have um, leading many institutions today, governmental institutions, bureaucratic institutions, uh, corporations. We often have people who live in a kind of a very unique, um, you know, for lack of a better term, globalized communities who are just cut off from ordinary people and, uh, to use your term, absolutely kind of lack empathy or lack an understanding of the different perspectives that people unlike themselves have. And I think it is causing them, we see these, as you know, tumultuous political movements around the world, um, you know, ranging from the populist movements in the West to the anti-corruption movements in Latin America to, frankly, the jihadist movement in Islam, very disruptive political movements around the world. And we just, in many cases, have people who can't even get their head around why any of this is happening, let alone design realistic responses to it. So that concerns me. The other thing, Carly, concerns me, particularly in the West, is that, and you know, maybe it's just partly my faith perspective, but I just sometimes really am concerned at how little thankfulness and appreciation we have for what we have. Um, you know, we are very prosperous with the means to deal with a lot of rapid change and adjustment, and yet, you know, I I often hear, whether it's from media or even kind of from public discourse itself, narratives that suggest you know, that we face levels of poverty and challenge and, and deprivation that, that, you know, just are, are not the case. We're just not thankful enough for what we have and the opportunity that gives us. And then I don't like, uh, you know, increasingly cavalier attitudes I see about, about institutions, about freedom, about democracy, that we just do not understand how lucky we are to have the kinds of systems we live in. They're, they're, as you know, they face enormous challenges. They're not fully functional, but they are, these are really special things that previous generations have fought for and died for and built and, and given us a lifestyle and, and, a, and a level of peace and freedom just unparalleled in human history. And I just hear people not being sufficiently appreciative and thankful and understanding those benefits and way too quick to want to tear it all down, and frankly, tear it all down often without really good thought-out alternatives to what it is they want to tear down. So, th those are the kind of things that worry me. And and you know, to some degree, they're look to some degree. If you look at history, they're the products. You know, peace and prosperity often makes c people complacent and unappreciative. And I just hope we don't fall into that trap. Well, there's so much in all that you just said. One of the things that I think distinguishes real leaders that you've just demonstrated in your answer is this balance, again, between 
clear-eyed realism and optimism. And you have to have both. I mean, things don't get better if you're not clear-eyed and realistic about problems, and yet nothing gets better if you're not optimistic that things can get better and if you don't take advantage of the assets that you have. Um, And I think you're absolutely right. I I remind audiences that uh, the iPhone, which has changed our lives in so fundamental such fundamental ways. The iPhone is only 11 years old. So we have, (laughs) we're in this brave new world in so many ways, and yet we're also in an era, to your point, of unprecedented opportunity and prosperity and stability. I also am reminded in your comments of what's going on in France right now. And I think it's fair to say as these yellow vest protests continue to, I think it's fair to say, grow, that a lot of policymakers are just stunned by it. They're like, oh, no, 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 global warming. We're obviously on the side of right here. We want to talk about climate change. We're doing all these good and important things. And I I was reading a quote from someone in France who said, you know, our leaders are talking about the end of the world and we spend all our time talking about how to get to the end of the month. That is so true. And and uh, look, I, I, the, the thing in France hopefully is a wake-up call for a lot of what I call global elites. Um, this has nothing to do with whether you, you know, I'm I quick to concede that I think climate change is a serious long-term challenge. That said, to on the basis of that, propose that you will, as a democratically elected head of state, you will pursue a polity that deliberately punishes ordinary people and their families for living as they must, for consuming goods that are neither a luxury nor an indulgence. You will punish them. Um, I, I don't know how many Americans and Canadians understand the extremity of the government, of the policies of the, of the Macron government. I mean, they are raising gas prices to the level of six to seven dollars American a gallon. Um, you know, this just to make it difficult for ordinary people to actually go about their their ordinary their their day to day lives. Uh, you know, we in a, first of all, I don't think any wise leader would do things like this. But in a democratic society, the idea that you're just so smart and so much more moral than everybody else that you have a right to do that is frankly appalling. And, you know, Carly, the, uh, this is where I say that a lot of the populism we worry about is, is actually being generated in many cases by legitimate grievances. And this is a clear case. You know, you have now polls in France showing an enormous percentage of the population would support the violent overthrow of the government. What people don't understand, you see these violent protests in France, and I think to people like you and me as, as political conservatives, it's shocking. But understand that these protests are supported by the vast majority of French people, even if they are violent. Um, but as I say, you've got to understand how disconnected um, the French, essentially the French administration and French ruling class is from ordinary people in that country. Yes. And, and it's possible to acknowledge that climate change is to use your words, a real long-term threat that we need to deal with it and to say at the same time, as one of these protesters said in France, you know, we don't have buses, we don't have trains, 
there is no option for us other than to get in our car <laughs> to go somewhere, and we can't support these increases. Well, uh, and and let's and let's look at how you know to be blunt, how kind of the elite elements of our society, which would probably include people like you and me, how they handle this, which is to live extremely high carbon intensive lifestyles, jet planes everywhere, large houses, et cetera, and to say, well, we'll pay, we'll pay, um, you know, carbon credits or, you know, this kind of form of modern and medieval indulgence. This is just silly. Um, You know, asking, saying there's a very serious problem and asking regular people to, you know, experience serious discomfort from dealing with it, and you at the top are not prepared in any way to accept any restraint on your lifestyle. It's, it, this is just absurd. Yes. Well, you know, um, Prime Minister, when you left your post as leader of the Conservative Party in 2015, you said that, uh, rightly so, you said, I could, I could stay, I could have stayed, but mm-hmm. you said, I think it's best for the party that you not stay and amass power. That is not always the common decision of someone who has power. That kind of decision to step away from position and title and power takes both humility and perspective. Talk about that decision and talk about the reaction to that decision as well. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. Obviously, you know, I had um, I'd won three successive elections and I was defeated, but we remained a strong second party uh, in parliament. I I I had not only strong support from the party, Carly. I think what a lot of people in other par- uh, countries don't f- understand is I was essentially the founder of the party I led. Um, you know, I was. One, I was not the only person, but I was one of a key number of people who brought the modern Conservative Party of Canada together. We united two separate parties and and several factions within those parties. And and that's really what allowed me to ultimately come to office in 2006 quite unexpectedly and then, and then to govern the country. So I had an, really an unprecedentedly strong position within my party. Now, part of the reason I arrived at that decision was First of all, it was twofold. One was a general philosophy I had, which was that I was out to form an institution. Um, I my Part of my measure of success from day one would be forming a party that not only came to government, but that one would, that would outlast me and be able to come consistently to government in the decades to come. That was a conscious objective of mine. I was there are many people in politics, business, and elsewhere who are very interested in what I call personal vehicles, and 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 often their view is, uh, you know, to quote uh, Louis the Fourteenth, that moi c'est le déluge, um, kind of it ends with me, and and I just never had that perspective as a, as a leader. I was I was out to establish an institution that would carry modern conservatism forward and and continue to influence the politics of the country long after I was gone. On top of that, um, you know, I was a very unusual politician. I won't get into how I became prime minister, but let's just say I had the most unusual route to public to, to the top political office in the country of any person in our history. The only person to be elected prime minister coming out of a third party movement, and I did not really, when I was a young man, intend to be a politician. Certainly not a career politician. I certainly never. 
until well into my life thought I would be prime minister. So when my wife and I got back into politics in 2001, we had kind of promised ourselves that, uh, you know, an unexpected situation occurred where I could become leader of my party. And so we took advantage of that. But, but I kind of promised her and promised myself that I'd take it as far as I can. And when I thought we really had crested and that, you know, we were kind of starting on the downside, that we would leave, never look back and and do something else with our lives. I've, I've just seen way too many politicians who, having been in the top positions, spend the rest of their lives building their legacy, settling scores, um, trying to regain glory. And I just did not want to run my life like that. I think I left office in my 50s thinking I have another career ahead of me. So that's I just had a very different personal perspective on this. Well, I think what you're saying is that you as a leader believed your role was not to aggrandize yourself, but to build something bigger than yourself. Um, one of the things that I think uh, frustrates people about politics is something actually George Washington pointed out in something like 1789. He said, the trouble with political parties is they will come to care only about winning, and mm-hmm. they will forget about problem-solving or governing. Um, and I do think people feel that way. And when all you care about is winning, you don't actually focus on problem solving. You just focus on making the arguments that will get people most revved up, most frustrated, maybe most angry, and most out to the polls for whatever your side is. And yet, leaders of all kinds actually should focus on changing the order of things for the better and solving problems and making progress, which is what you've always focused on. And I think it's based on what you just said. I think it's a big reason why you said, okay, I've done my part. This I've served my season of leadership well. It's time for me to step aside. Yeah, Carly, look, I would say that... Um once again, there's balance in all of this. Um, yes, uh, one hopes. Uh, I'm obviously very distrustful of people who get into political life without cle- clear objectives on what it is they want to do to kind of better society or at least better government itself. Um, you should have those objectives, but I think we have to be realistic. To to implement them, you do have to win. You can't, as a practical political leader, decide that winning is unimportant. You're going to ignore it. But you have to obviously dedicate those efforts towards the achievement of a higher objective, likewise with political parties. And I know what George Washington said about parties. And, uh, you know, I came out of a, I tell people I came out of a populist wave in the 1980s. And part of all populist waves is to bemoan existing parties or even to bemoan the concept of parties themselves. But I happen to believe that political parties are essential in politics because politics is a team sport. And if you're not in a party, you're not on a team. And you have to be on a team. But once again, the, 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 I think the wise and, and good political leader shapes that team around a shared mission to do good things and not simply to, you know, enjoy victory in the spoils of office. Well, once again, balance is the art of leadership. And I think the balance point you've talked about is uh, so true. So just as a a, a last uh, question for you, what do you look for in leaders uh, 
And how, after all of your experience, how would you define leadership? So, um, in leaders, I would say, you know, when I look at the kinds of people that I have wanted to have succeed me, I look for several things. First, I look for a person who, and maybe this tells you a bit about my definition of leadership, a person who um, has a mission bigger than themselves, obviously a, a kind of mission that I would support, but importantly, a mission that is bigger than themselves, certainly a mission not defined by their kind of personal ego, but a mission bigger than themselves that's dedicated to service, dedicated to a cause, um, one that is infused with um, a practical ability, wisdom, experience, etc. And then I think in terms of mentoring people, what I really look for and the people I'm very optimistic about, Carly, are people who, um, you know, say not simply have the right um, motives and the right agenda and a lot of the skills and abilities. What impresses me the most are people who grow in jobs. Um, you know, and I have, I've seen it all. I have seen people who, you know, come on like gangbusters and then they, they fail or they never improve. Uh, but I've also seen people who started from low expectations on my part who just constantly exceed them and no matter what task I gave them, constantly get better. And so I think that's, you know, you'll never know if someone is a leader until they're actually in a position and forced to grow in the job. There's, you can never be fully prepared for leadership in a significant sized institution. But I say all of the things I just outlined are signs that a person could well be successful in a leadership position. Mr. Prime Minister, this has been a wonderfully engaging and enlightening conversation. I so appreciate uh, your spending some time with us, and I know uh, people are going to learn a lot when they listen uh, to this podcast, and I would commend as well uh, to our listeners your book right here, right now, Politics and Leadership in the Age of Disruption. You don't have to agree with Prime Minister Harper's policy positions to learn a lot from the way he talks about um, the issues that confront us all and how to handle those issues in a rapidly changing environment. Thank you so much for your time and your insight this morning. Thank you for the opportunity, Carly. That's all for today. But you can always check out more episodes online at carlyfiorina.com or on iTunes please subscribe so you can get all of the episodes. And while you're at it, please give us a review. We'd really appreciate five stars. That review will help more people join our conversations. You can find more information and keep up to date on new episodes and offers by joining our email list at carlyfiorina.com slash by example. You can also send us feedback there or on Facebook and Twitter at Carly Fiorina. Also, go to carlyfiorina.com to pre-order my new book called Find Your Way. It's about leadership, unleashing your own power, and unlocking your highest potential. Next time on By Example, University of Louisville President Dr. Neely Bendapudi. I'm Carly Fiorina, and this is By Example. <laughs>